Good morning to everyone. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's uh, great to be here this morning. Great to celebrate uh, with Henry as well, and just all the things God's doing. Uh, as, as has been said before, we're starting a new series today in the book of Exodus, looking at God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt, and the, the plagues, and the burning bush, and all these stories that we know. So if you would grab a Bible, uh, either your own or one from the seat back in front of you, and turn to Exodus chapter 1. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. It's on Page 45, if you grabbed a Bible from in front of you. Uh, we're not going to read it all in one, in one go at the beginning, but we're going to be reading it all throughout the duration of the sermon, so make sure you have it open to refer to as we make our way through the text. As you finish turning there, let me just pray for us as well. Let's pray together. So, Father, we thank you for your presence here with us. We thank you that You've been present with us as we worship you and as we uh, did communion, and Father, and we pray that you'd be present with us now as we read your word and as we study it. Father, we thank you that you show us who you are through your word and that you uh, call us to follow you more faithfully and love you more fully through it. And so we just pray that these things would happen now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's it's a fun week in my house coming up because my son Carter is going to be turning two years old on next Saturday. And so it's been a, it's been a fun week of, of kind of preparations. The nice thing is you don't have to really uh, try to keep anything secret because uh, nothing really, uh, Carter doesn't suspect a thing for his birthday. But, um, but it's been a fun season and it's been fun looking back as well on the past two years and just some of the highlights of all the things that have happened uh, in the life of my son. And as I was thinking about it the other day, one of the things that kind of came back to me was, was one of the things we've been able to do with Carter uh, ever since he was really little and continues to this day, and, and that's reading stories to him before bedtime. Uh, I remember uh, some of the first times when he was just barely uh, big enough to sit up on his own and kind of have him on my lap and, and be reading some stories to him before bed. And, and it's been something that to this day uh, he just loves to do. Uh, it's been interesting, too, seeing kind of some of the phases that he goes through uh, in his preference for books. And so uh, in the beginning, I was able to kind of choose which books I wanted to read to him, and he would just kind of sit there and, and not really have any opinions. But, but eventually, he started to develop his own preferences for what books he wanted to read. Uh, he went through some phases. One of the phases was uh, a Paw Patrol phase. And if there's any uh, parents of young children in this room, you'll probably know and either love or hate the Paw Patrol. But uh, Carter went through a Paw Patrol phase. Uh, he went through a Winnie the Pooh phase. And most recently, interestingly enough, he's gone through a Curious George phase. Uh, curious George is a curious little monkey. He always gets into trouble. And maybe that's actually why he's in this phase right now. Um, but, but either way, we have this Curious George book, and every night before bed, Carter will, after he's brushed his teeth, he'll grab that book off the shelf, jump onto the couch, and, and kind of pat the couch beside him as if to say, come on, Dad, let's, let's read this book together. Uh, it's a great book as well because it's got 12 uh, short stories within this, one, w- within this one book, and so there's a little bit of variety. And what makes this particular book really helpful is that on the back cover, there's actually a picture representing each story in the book. And so Carter can look at the pictures and he can point to his favorite ones. And so if he wants to read Curious George Plays Mini Golf, he'll point to the little picture of Curious George playing mini golf. Or if he wants to read Curious George and and the dog show, he'll point to that one. As you can see, I know these stories quite well. Um, Now, the reason I I, I mention this story about my son is because I think sometimes what can happen uh, when we read the Old Testament... Uh, the, the portion of scripture before Jesus' birth, 
uh, is we can treat the Old Testament a little bit like Curious George. Now, here's what I mean by that. I don't mean that we treat it as fiction or as children's literature or anything like that. But what I mean is that we, we treat the Old Testament kind of as a collection of short stories that don't really relate to each other, but, you know, are kind of connected, but not really. Uh, we see the Old Testament as a whole bunch of stories. Um, and, and I'll admit, this is, this is the way I probably saw the Old Testament for most of my life. And so if we use the analogy of the book that I read to my son, Carter, uh, it would be like the Old Testament had, you know, a bunch of pictures on the back, and we would see pictures like, you know, the story of David and Goliath, uh, Daniel in the lion's den, uh, Noah in the ark, uh, Moses in the burning bush, David, in, I think I said David and Goliath already, but you, but you get the idea, right? All these different pictures uh, of these stories, and what we do is kind of say, okay, this is my favorite one, I'll read this first. Uh, okay, I like this one as well, and then we'll read that one next. And we kind of treat it like uh, a compilation book, a book of just a whole bunch of different stories. Uh, growing up in the church, this is how I kind of thought of the Old Testament for most of my life. And, and, and being a good church kid, going to Sunday school and going to church uh, even twice every Sunday with my family, I learned all the stories of the Old Testament fairly, uh, fairly well. And, and so if you asked me about any of the stories, I would probably know most of the details but it wasn't until later in life that I realized uh, that, that rather than being a collection of stories, uh, the Old Testament and actually all of Scripture is rather one big story. Your outline says it like this. It says the Old Testament is one big story about our God. Uh, it might help you to use an analogy from theater or from film. Uh, because like I said before, there's a whole bunch of different human characters that we meet in the Old Testament. Uh, we meet people like David, like Daniel, like uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Abraham, Adam, all of these characters. And sometimes it's difficult to, to kind of understand how do these people all fit together? How can this all be one story with so many different people? Uh, how I think of it sometimes is, is thinking of all these human actors as supporting actors and actresses. Uh, so they have a part to play in the story, but the real hero of the story is God himself. And what happens when you see the Bible that way, when you see the Old Testament that way, is it starts to take on this whole new, new meaning in life. Uh, these stories that were interesting in and of, them, of themselves, they start to make a whole lot more sense and, and paint a greater picture when they're put within the context of this one big story of our God. Uh, and this is uh, important because when we recognize the story, uh, the Old Testament as one big story, there's this amazing unity that comes across it like we've never seen before. And so this is exactly what our text is going to help us with today. Exodus chapter 1 is a way for us to, to kind of contextualize the story of God rescuing his people from Egypt within the larger story that's already at work in the rest of the Bible. And so with this in mind, let's start reading uh, at verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now I imagine if before the service I gave you a piece of paper and said, we're going to be talking about, you know, God rescuing his people from Egypt and the 10 plagues and all that, you know, that story. I imagine if I told you to, to from memory, write down the story, 
I imagine probably nobody would start with this list of names that we have here. Maybe some really scholarly people among us, but, but I imagine most of us would start with, you know, well, God's people were in slavery, or maybe we'd start with, you know, Moses was born and he was put in a basket or something like that. Uh, I imagine that most of us wouldn't start here, and some of us may be even wondering, yeah, what does this list of, of random names have to do with the story we're about to hear? Uh, well, like I said before, Exodus is part of a, a story that's already been started, and we can kind of think of it as a sequel in a way. And like any good sequel, what it's doing is actually recapping for us information we should already know from the story that's come before. Uh, What we know from the story that comes before in the book of Genesis is that this list of names is not random uh, by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but this is actually a family who's received some incredible promises from God. And so what we want to do right now is actually take a step back to the book of Genesis to see what else we can find out about these names that are listed here. Uh, if you were with us last summer, uh, you'll remember we did a study in the book of Genesis and looked at a particular character named Abraham. Now Abraham's going to be kind of foundational for, for everything that we, we read right now because Abraham was a person who was called by God to go to a land that God would show him. And God gave Abraham uh, an, an incredible promise. He gives it to him multiple times. Uh, But it's summarized really nicely in Genesis chapter 13, verse 14 to 16, um, which says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted." And so this is a promise, in summary, of multiple descendants and this incredible land for them to live in. Uh, it's, it's, it's incredible language, right? God says, basically, look in every direction. As far as you can see, that's going to be the land I'm going to give to your descendants. And he says they're going to be like the dust of the earth. In other words, if you can count all the dust particles in, in the world, you'll be able to count the descendants that I'm going to give to you. Uh, so God gives Abraham this incredible, incredible promise. Uh, skipping ahead a little bit, and we'll have to kind of follow now. Abraham has a son named Isaac, and the promise is repeated to Isaac as well. Now, jumping ahead again, Isaac has a son named Jacob, and the promise is repeated to him as well in Genesis chapter 35, verse 10 to 12. And listen carefully to the words that God uses, because this is where things are going to start to connect for us. Uh, God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give you the land of your, to your descendants after you. And so now we see this person that God calls Israel, who's Abraham's grandson, is given this same promise by God that his family will one day become a great nation, that kings will come from them and they'll dwell in the land that God promised to them. Uh, and so these promises that we've, we've just read about, they're right at the forefront of everything that happens in the book of Genesis. Uh, one of the questions in the book of Genesis is, how is God going to be faithful to keep these promises? And it's a question that we, we ask ourselves all throughout the book. But interestingly enough, it's actually not a question that's fully answered for us in the book of Genesis. Uh, the book of Genesis ends with Israel's family uh, numbering about 70 people, so a good amount of people for a family, but no, by no means a great nation yet. 
and, and Israel's family living in the land of Egypt, which is a nice place to live, but outside of the land that God had promised to his people. And so we, the book of Genesis ends with, you know, Israel's family is not a great nation, and they're not in the land that God promised them. Uh, the book of Exodus starts in the exact same way. And, and so the question that we're faced with right at the beginning of Exodus, even just by reading these names, the question that we should be asking ourselves is when and how is God going to fulfill the promises he made to these people? Uh, that should be a question that even from this list of names we're already asking ourselves. And, and, it's, a, and it's a question that's going to start to be answered as we continue reading. Uh, verse, verse 6 says this, Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Uh, These verses are important because what they do is they help us to even further connect the situation that ends Genesis with the new situation we're going to be seeing in the book of Exodus. Uh, So we we learn that all the people that we know from the book of Genesis, uh, they're all dead and all their generation is actually dead. Uh, But what we also see here is that the nation that comes from these descendants is, is directly connected to them. In other words, the people that we learn about in the book of Exodus, they're not just some random nation. They're a nation that was, that was birthed out of this family that God had made this promise to. Uh, and, and here we see actually that these people are increasing rapidly. The language is quite excessive. It says they were fruitful, they increased greatly, they grew exceedingly strong, uh, the land was filled with them. Uh, it's interesting because this is actually language that's used in some of the promises that God's made about this nation becoming a, a, an incredible nation. Uh, John Durham writes this, There is more than a hint of the miraculous in this growth of 70 souls into a teeming swarm. This unnatural family growth is everywhere accounted for in Exodus as God's doing. And, and so in other words, what we're seeing here is this family becoming the nation that God promised that they would become. Uh, fittingly, on Canada Day weekend, we're actually witnessing uh, the birth of a nation right here in Exodus chapter 1. And and it's interesting because in some ways, uh, I was thinking about the way Canada got its name, and it's quite the opposite of this nation. I I did some research this week uh, leading up to Canada Day, and one of the things I found interesting was how Canada got its name. Now, kind of the first step of this is go back 150 years, and, and there was a conference held in London where they kind of had proposals made for what the name of our country would be. And of course, Canada won, but there were some other names that were on the table at the time. And names such as Colonia, Laurentia, New Albanian, Superior, uh, and Victoria Land, just to name a few. And and of course, Canada won out, and it became the name of our country. Uh, But if you go back even further, uh, there's different theories for how the name Canada actually came into existence uh, in, in the first place. Uh, the first theory is, the, is probably the more likely theory. It's that uh, the word Canada or Kanata was just an Iroquois word which meant villages or settlements, right? And so as explorers would come into this country and see all the villages and settlements, they said, this is a country of Canada's, uh, which became the country of Canada, which became eventually just Canada. The second theory is a bit less likely, but a bit more interesting, and that's that when Spanish and Portuguese explorers were coming through the area that they would later call Canada, uh, they were looking for things that they, would, w- they could mine, so different materials that they can harvest from the ground and, and things like that. And, and the story goes that when they came through Canada, they didn't really find anything of value or anything of worth, and so on their maps that, that they had, they wrote Aki Nada, 
which means nothing here. Uh, there's, there's actually a third theory as well, and that was the theory that um, when they were deciding what to name the country, they said, well, we, it's too difficult to decision. We'll just draw three random letters. And, and so they drew a C, an N, and a D, and they just said, we'll just say A after every letter, and that's how it came about. But, but either, regardless of how it, how it came about, what we see with the name of Canada is that on the one hand, it's kind of interesting and a little bit original, uh, but doesn't really give us a sense of purpose as a nation in and of itself. Uh, that was something we had to develop later uh, as a nation. But there was nothing about the word Canada or the name in and of itself that really gave us a purpose as a nation. Uh, the exact opposite is true for the nation we read about in the book of Exodus. Uh, so their name is fairly unoriginal, uh, but it actually is a name that gives them incredible purpose. Uh, in, in verse 7, we read about them. that The name is literally, in Hebrew, just the sons of Israel. Uh, the sons of Israel. So if you think about the, the meaning about what to call this nation, you know, we sit down and say, what should we call the nation that descended from the sons of Israel? What about sons of Israel, right? So it's, it's not that original, but it's a name that has great significance. Uh, it, it's interesting, the, the different English versions will take it slightly differently, uh, but all with the same heart at, at, the, at the heart of it. Uh, so the NASB says, you know, sons of Israel, quite literally. RSV says descendants of Israel. Uh, ESV says people of Israel. NIV says Israelites. Uh, so there's some differences, but right at the heart of that is this uh, direct link to the person Israel who God gave these promises to. And so again, not the most original name for a country or a nation, uh, but a name that has meaning and significance and should give this people a purpose. Because every time their name is mentioned, it should remind them, oh yeah, we are the descendants of Israel, this man who is given these amazing promises by God. We are a nation of promise. And so you see, in the beginning of this chapter in Exodus, one of the things that the author wants to do is to make crystal clear that we're not just starting some new story here. This is part of a story that's already been told through the book of Genesis and a story that needs to have a conclusion Uh, And we're actually going to see that not coming until much later in God's Word. Uh, But now that we've kind of established this context, let's keep reading uh, to some new developments. Verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Uh, This might seem like a small detail, but this is going to set the plot moving forward because what what we know from Genesis is that Joseph, one of Israel's sons, had come to Egypt under some difficult circumstances, but had actually risen to a place of power within Egypt. Uh, God had used him to save the country from a famine that was happening. And so Pharaoh, the Pharaoh at the time, really appreciated Joseph. He treated Joseph very well, and he welcomed Joseph's family to come live in the land because of Joseph. Well, now we've seen that Joseph's dead. His whole generation's dead. The Pharaoh that really liked Joseph is dead. And now there's a new person in charge who doesn't know anything about Joseph. Uh, And so he has no obligation or you know, or necessity or even desire to, to keep any allegiances happening there. And so in verse uh, 7, we saw the explosive growth of this people. Uh, now we're going to hear about this new king's plans to try to stop that growth in verse 9. And Pharaoh said to, this, to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. 
Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python, and Ramses. Uh, I want us to notice this one small little clause in, in verse 10 where Pharaoh gives the reason for the actions he's about to undertake. He says this, he says, lest they multiply. And so one of the main reasons for what Pharaoh is doing here in oppressing the people is to stop the people from multiplying. Now, if you were reading this just on a first read and kind of not really uh, thinking about the context too much, you might think, okay, this is, you know, just, um, you know, something he wants to do. But when you see it in light of the promises that God has made to his people, Israel, we know that this is actually going to be something that, that God's going to have something to say about. Uh, if God's promised the growth of this people, uh, it's not likely that Pharaoh is just going to be able to, to stop it quickly. And, and so we shouldn't be surprised about what we read in verse 12. It says this, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread ab- abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Your outline says that this part of the story reminds us that although God allows evil and pain in the lives of his people, nothing will stop him from keeping his promises. Now, I imagine if you were to do a survey of the people of Israel at this time, and you ask them, who has the power right now? If you were to ask them, who, who's powerful right now, they would say, Pharaoh. And if you ask them, well, what reason could you give that, that Pharaoh's the most powerful person right now? And they say, well, you know, first of all, he's taken our nation as slaves. He's oppressing us. He's treating us ruthlessly. He's doing basically whatever he wants to do to us, and we can't do anything about it. And so I'm sure if you ask people living through this, they would say, Pharaoh is the one who has the most power. It's just completely obvious. Uh, But what this text is teaching us here is that no matter how much power Pharaoh has, and, and he does have power, nothing that Pharaoh does will be able to stop God's plans and purposes from being accomplished. Uh, Remember, Pharaoh's primary goal, we saw it in verse 10, his primary goal was to stop this nation from growing. No, so he's doing all these things, lest the people multiply, lest they do this and escape from the land. And and, and we see here that the one thing that Pharaoh set out to do is actually the one thing that he fails to do. Uh, Verse 12 makes it explicit when it says, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And so we see in God's providence that the one thing Pharaoh thinks is going to put a stop to God's plans from being fulfilled is actually the thing that moves those plans forward and makes those things happen. Uh, Even in the midst of uh, Pharaoh's plans, God is still at work bringing out his promises. And and as we think about this, we shouldn't be surprised by it, I don't think, because we see this all throughout Scripture. I I mentioned Joseph earlier. Joseph was one of Israel's sons. Uh, He was actually not very liked by his brother, and he was sold into slavery. Uh, there was a discussion of whether they could, should kill him or, or what they should do with him. And, and one of the brothers said, we should, we should, sit, we should sell him into slavery. Uh, and so you can just see how kind of messed up this situation is when, you know, the nice brother wants to sell the other brother into slavery. But he's sold into slavery and he uh, eventually ends up in a house in Egypt for a man named Potiphar. And, and things are going relatively well there. But eventually he gets accused of a crime he didn't commit and he goes to jail. And when he's in jail, he meets someone who, who gets out of jail and says, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to, I'm going to you know, help you escape from jail or, or 
talk to Pharaoh about you, and the person forgets about him. And so he stays in jail for a long time. And eventually, though, uh, he, he's released from jail. He helps Pharaoh interpret a dream. And he comes up with this plan through God's help to save this nation from the famine that's about to happen. Well, the famine comes and, and Egypt is saved because of Joseph uh, working God's plan. And eventually, Israel's sons, Joseph's brothers, come to Egypt to, to be saved from this famine. Of course, they don't know Joseph is still alive. And so there's this incredible reunion where they realize that the brother that they sold into slavery is now the brother that's at work saving their lives from this famine. Uh, There's this great line at the end of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, uh, where we kind of get Joseph's take on this. He says this to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive even as they are today. So even in this situation where Joseph's brothers had evil intentions and, and basically did things that were despicable, God was still at work accomplishing his purposes. Uh, we see this in the New Testament as well. One of my favorite examples is in the book of Acts when uh, a person named Saul uh, is persecuting the church. Uh, this is shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection when the church is kind of centrally located in Jerusalem. And Paul, or Saul, as he's also called, uh, doesn't like this at all. He thinks they have it totally wrong. And what he wants to do is basically stomp out the church and, and put an end to it. And so his idea is that if we persecute these people, if we persecute the church, it's just going to scatter them all over the place and it's going to just fizzle out to nothing. And that'll be the way that we can get rid of the church. And, and so Saul starts this persecution. Uh, his plan works up into a point. It spreads the believers all out, all over the place. But what happens next is, is God's work because the church doesn't fizzle out to nothing. It actually is a catalyst for the gospel being spread all over the world. And so Saul's intentions were wicked. His, his desires were evil. He wanted to see the church stomped out, but God's purposes prevailed in the midst of that. And probably the best example and the greatest one is the, res, or the crucifixion of Jesus Christ himself. Listen to these words from Acts 2, verse 23. Peter says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so on the one hand, we see that the crucifixion was done because wicked people did evil things uh, with evil intentions. And yet on the other hand, we see that the crucifixion came about because it was God's plan for the redemption of the world. God's at work in, in, in our lives, regardless of the pain and the disappointment that we're going through. And, and I think this is, this is important to recognize because sometimes we can fall into a bit of a trap where we, we have a thought process that says something like, you know, because I'm a believer or, or because I, you know, God is my heavenly father, I'll, I'll probably be shielded from a lot of the pain and disappointment in life that other people would have. Uh, we we kind of have this mentality sometimes, and the problem with that is that pain and disappointment inevitably come, and then we don't know what to do with those things. Uh, but what we learn here is that God doesn't promise a life free of pain and disappointment. Uh, I'd love to say that he does, but he simply doesn't. Uh, we learn actually that if, if, we call, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, one of the things that we can actually expect is a, a measure of suffering in some way. And so God doesn't promise a life free of pain and disappointment, but what he does promise is that he's still at work accomplishing his ultimate purposes in the midst of that pain. 
Uh, There's a great verse in Romans uh, 8, verse 35 to 37. It says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, notice what this text isn't saying. It's not saying that these things won't happen. It's not saying that tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger. It's not saying these things won't happen. But what it is saying is that when these things happen, no matter how terrible they are, they won't be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so no matter how terrible Pharaoh makes things for the people of Israel, and he made things fairly terrible, Nothing would be able to stop God's purposes from being accomplished. Uh, But Pharaoh doesn't know this, so he moves to plan B. Verse 15 says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. And so again, Pharaoh's second plan has the same goal as the first, but this time he does a much more direct approach. Uh, now, if you have a baby in British Columbia in, in, in this day and age, one of the first decisions you need, you need to make is whether you're going to receive care from a doctor or a midwife. And that's kind of a decision you need to make. Uh, back then, your options would have been limited to midwife or nothing. And so what we see here is Pharaoh is going after the whole, uh, the whole nation of, of Israel's descendants. He's, he's not leaving anyone out of this, out of this equation. Uh, The reason he singles out the boys probably has to do with the statement he made earlier about fear of this nation rising up in war against him. Uh, Back in those days, the the baby boys would have been the potential soldiers and warriors of the next generation, and so he's trying to to stop that. Uh, But as we've already seen before, God's purpose is for this nation to grow and become a mighty nation, and and nothing Pharaoh can do uh, will stop that. Verse 17 says this, But the midwives feared God, and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the, king call, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. And so once again, Pharaoh has a plan to stop the growth of this nation. And once again, his plan is foiled, uh, this time by a, a couple of Hebrew midwives. And I don't think we're supposed to miss some of the irony that's at play here. And what I mean by that is, if you were to draw a chart of the power structures of Egypt, in other words, who reported to who and who is in charge of what, right at the top of that chart, you would have Pharaoh uh, as the most powerful person in, the, in that country and probably even in the world at that time. Uh, below Pharaoh, you would have, you know, maybe 10 people reporting to him and 100 people reporting to them and thousands and tens of thousands under them. And right near the bottom of the chart, somewhere to the side, would be these two Hebrew midwives uh, who did not have very much power at all from a worldly point of view. Uh, If there was anybody who shouldn't have been able to stop Pharaoh, it would be these two midwives who didn't have uh, power from a worldly point of view. But what we see here is that God is on the midwife's side and God's purposes will not be stopped. Uh, it says the midwife's fear of God keeps them from listening to Pharaoh's commands. Uh, and, and of course, Pharaoh being so powerful demands a reason for this. And, and listen to the midwife say what they say. It's really interesting. The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian woman, 
for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. Uh, it was interesting reading this because even in the last couple of weeks, I've, I've heard a couple stories of, of women who have given birth to babies very quickly before a doctor or midwife was able to be called and, and to be present. And so uh, this kind of thing does happen. Uh, presumably it would happen even more in a culture without telephones or cars or ambulances and things like that. Uh, but it seems a little far-fetched to think that this would happen every single time. Uh, and, and so a lot of people look at this and say, well, it seems like the midwives are lying. And, and from this, there's kind of this ethical uh, debate that, that rages about whether it's ever okay to lie in any given circumstances, right? And so some people would say, no, the, you know, it's wrong to lie no matter what the circumstances, even if it's life or death. Uh, other people would say, well, I think it's okay to lie in some circumstances, maybe if someone's life's on the line or your own life's on the line. Uh, it's an interesting debate, um, but unfortunately, the author of Exodus doesn't really talk about it uh, all that much, right? I wish, I wish he did. I wish there was a line that said, you know, and it was okay that the midwives lied because this and this, or, you know, maybe, or, and it wasn't okay that they lied, but God forgave them. But, but we actually don't see any explanation of of whether it was okay or not that they lied. What we do see, though, is that God rewards their behavior because they acted in fear of him. Uh, Verse 20 and 21 say this. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Your outline says, this part of the story challenges us to celebrate each and every way we see God at work in our lives. Here's why I say this, because I think it would be really easy to read through the first chapter of Exodus and totally miss what God was doing. I know the first time that I read through this chapter, I was kind of flipping, flipping through and thinking, man, when is God going to show up and, and start doing some stuff to take care of his people? Right? Because think about what's happened so far. We've learned that, you know, everybody we know from Genesis has died. Uh, a pharaoh is raised up who doesn't know them. Uh, a pharaoh is not treating them kindly. He's oppressing them. He's, he's doing all kinds of these things against them. And in the first time we actually hear about God showing up explicitly is in, chapter, or in verse 20 and 21 where he deals well with the midwives. And so I think it would be easy to, to read this chapter and miss what God was doing. I think it would be really easy to live through something like this and miss what God was doing. And so I imagine a lot of people would be thinking about what God hadn't done yet rather than what God was doing. You know, God hasn't rescued us from Pharaoh yet. God still hasn't given us the land that he promised to give us. God still hasn't given us relief from this oppression. And I think sometimes we can fall into the same trap. The same trap where we're focused on that one thing that God hasn't done for us yet, that we actually miss the things that he's doing right in our midst. And so we might say things to God like, God, you still haven't freed me from this sin, or God, you still haven't healed her from this disease, or God, you still haven't you know, allowed my husband to come to know you. And we, we say all these things, and sometimes we focus so much on what God still hasn't done for us and what we're hoping he does in these areas that we totally miss the things he's already at work doing right in our lives, right, right on this day. Uh, it would have been easy to miss. I imagine some people, you know, they would have seen the God giving this nation incredible growth and they would have seen what happened to the midwives and they would have said, well, I'm, I'm actually more focused on what God's still going to do. And, and is it good to hope for God to do these things in our life? Absolutely it is. And we should keep bringing our requests to God. But let's not let the things that God still hasn't done for us keep us from seeing the things that he's right in the middle of doing. 
Maybe a question you can ask the person you came with today is, what have you seen God doing in your life uh, in this past week? Uh, To recognize what God is doing in our lives. You see, he's at work. And what we've seen is that he's at work in a way that even the most powerful person in the world can try with all their might and all the resources to stop him, but he won't be able to. Uh, But of course, Pharaoh will give it one more try. And we read this in verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Uh, Here we see the commands extended. It's become even more intense now going from the midwives to all the people uh, with the same goal in mind to stop this nation that God has blessed from growing. And what we know is that the results of this will be devastating, but we know this as well by now, that no matter how intensely or violently Pharaoh oppresses God's people, God's purposes will remain. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 22, it ends with this command uh, that every baby boy shall be killed. Uh, Chapter 2 opens with the story of a baby boy who's not killed and who God uses to accomplish his purpose of rescuing his people. Uh, God is at work. He is fully in control. Uh, I could have quoted this earlier, but I thought I'd save it till the end. Uh, in Genesis chapter 15, God's speaking with Abraham. He's the, the grandfather of Israel and, and the father of this great nation. And, and God is explaining kind of how the promise is going to unfold. And, and this conversation, it just shows us just how much God is in control years later when all this stuff takes place. God says this to Abraham. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And so what this shows us is that God was at work unfolding his great story, and God is still at work today unfolding that same story. And so let's take notice of what God's doing, and let's praise him for it. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a living God. Thank you that you're alive and that you're at work in the lives of your people. Father, thank you that no matter what we're facing, and some of the things we're facing are so terrible, Father, thank you that your purposes and your promises will never fail. Father, would you send your spirit just to be with us and to lead us and to guide us and to help us to see every single way that you're at work in our lives. We praise you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.